Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you speak to us through your word and that you, th- you speak to us through your word and reveal the greatness of your son. And we pray that we, as we look at this passage, uh, there's going to be uh, a lot of parties involved and, and things that might seem foreign and remote to us. We might have read through this and wondered, what has this got to do with me? But we pray for your spirit's help. Help us, Father, to understand your word, to be challenged to live in response to it. And help me, Father, by your spirit to speak clearly from this passage as I ought. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2007, a group of Chinese reporters came up with a novel idea to investigate, test the greed and corruption of local hospitals. So they attempted to pass off tea as urine samples and submit the drinks for tests. The result? Six out of ten hospitals in Hangzhou concluded that the patient's urinary tracts were infected, with five of the hospitals prescribing medication costing upwards of $50. The reporters went on to show that healthy people were consistently diagnosed with diseases and small ailments were said to be much more serious. The hospitals and, leaders, and the leaders running them were treating patients as automatic telemachines. Wow. If you ever go on holidays in, Japan, uh, in China, be very careful that you don't end up in hospital. But thank God for these diligent reporters. They tested the hospitals and they revealed the corruption inside. Now, in our passage today, we see the same thing, a series of tests that show the corruption of the Jewish leaders and the goodness of Jesus. Now, our passage today contains two sandwiches. Uh, We talk about sandwiches a lot. Mark seems to be a big fan of sandwiches. The New Testament is full of sandwiches. I'm not making these things up. First sandwich has a number of tests that the Pharisees and Sadducees put Jesus through. And in the middle of those tests is a parable. The second sandwich, in the second half of our passage, has two individuals on the outside who seem to be doing the right thing. And in the middle, we see the Pharisees again, and Jesus says that they're doing the wrong things. So we're going to look at our first sandwich, and we're going to eat it from the inside out. So that's why in our bulletins, we're going to start in the middle, uh, the middle bit, because the middle bit helps us understand the outside parts. Okay? So the middle bit is a parable, a story. Now, when you read parables in the Gospels, the idea is not to go through them and try and work out what each detail corresponds to in real life. Usually, a parable has one or maybe two main points. The details are not the main things. But this parable seems to be a bit different. It seems, I think, that we're invited to look at each element and how it corresponds to real life. Now, I just said that you shouldn't do that, but I think we're invited to do that here because of the context. This parable in the middle of the sandwich is inviting us to draw parallels between the elements of the parable and what's going on in the immediate context. And so the parable setting is a vineyard. Uh, The vineyard, I think, seems to represent God's people or maybe the temple. The vineyard owner is very clearly God the Father. The tenants, the workers of the vineyard, represent the Jewish leaders. The owner, he sends a bunch of servants over a period of time. That seems, messengers and servants, and that seems to correspond with the prophets of the Old Testament. 
And then the owner's son is finally sent, and he's a clear reference to Jesus, especially in how he is described in verse 6. You notice in verse 6, the, the owner calls him his beloved son. Now, Jesus has been called that twice already in the Gospel of Mark. First, at the very beginning of the Gospel, after his baptism, and the second time at his transfiguration, only a couple of chapters uh, uh, ago. Both times, God's voice speaks to the witnesses, and he says, Jesus is my beloved son. So when the owner calls him his beloved son, sending his beloved son, there's a clear echo of that. Now, the point of the parable, I think, is relatively clear. The Jewish leaders have a very long history of rejecting God's prophets and messengers. And they will do something even more heinous in the end. They will kill God's own beloved son. But God will destroy these wicked leaders in the end. Rejecting the son is ultimately rejecting the owner. So the Jewish leaders' rejection of Jesus is ultimately a rejection of God. Now, in verses 10 and 11, Jesus caps off this parable by quoting from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, the choice here, the choice of quote here is super interesting. And the use of the word rejected in Psalm 118 should prick our ears as well. Jesus has used that same word of himself in chapter 8, verse 34, he said that he would be rejected and then killed. To be rejected is, to be, is, to, is the same as dying. Rejection is the same as death. So how does the stone that gets rejected then go on to become the most integral part of the building? The cornerstone. How does something die then become the most important part? Surely a, a resurrection here is being implied. That's what, Mark, that's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. If you've got your Bibles, if, keep, keep your finger there in our passage. Turn quickly to chapter 8, verse 31. And hear Jesus say, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. You see, the vineyard's son might die. The vineyard's, vineyard owner's son might die. But he will live again. And those tenants will be destroyed. If you reject the son, you are rejecting the father. But rejecting the son, it, it doesn't change his position, nor does it overthrow him. Jesus will remain king. A few years ago, I heard a minister share that he uh, had set up his four-year-old boy, his son, in the upstairs bathroom. He started running the, the water for the bath, uh, and he had to duck downstairs for a phone call. Four-year-old left alone in the bathroom, generally okay. I mean, what could go wrong? A minute later, he noticed some water trickling down the stairs. And then that water, that trickle ended up being a bit more of a flood Quickly, he hung up the phone, he ran upstairs, and he found the bathroom flooded. His son thought it would be funny to put his towel into the bath and block the drain, letting the water spill everywhere. And as he crashed into the bathroom, his son looked up to him, grabbed a little kid's chair, and held it up like a lion, old-school lion tamer. Back! Back! <laughs> now, at that moment, 
this minister, he had no idea whether to laugh or to cry. Here was his little naked son causing a flood, deftly defying his father with a chair as though a chair was enough to hold his father back. If you reject the king, he still remains the king. All that rejecting, all that rejecting Jesus will achieve is God's judgment upon you. That parable sets the background for what happens in the bread part, the outer part of our sandwich. The religious leaders, they're rejecting Jesus. They are plotting to get rid of him. But it's not going to amount to much in the end. So even so, we see three rounds of testing, three rounds where the Pharisees and Sadducees test Jesus, hoping to trip him up. Now, before the first round of testing begins, Jesus already knows their motivation. You go back to chapter 11, verse 18. And we're already told that the Pharisees and the the leaders, they're seeking a way to destroy Jesus. And so the first test comes in, and it's a test of authority. Chapter 11, verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? This is a bit of an odd question. It's a bit of an odd question. Given that Jesus has already so clearly demonstrated his authority... In fact, if you go through our sermon series on our church website, you'll notice that the first couple of sermons were all about the authority of Jesus. And so what is this test? You see, if Jesus claims that his authority is from God, then they could stone him for blasphemy. But if Jesus doesn't want to be stoned and he just says his authority is earthly, then why should anyone listen to him? Well, that's a neat little trap. Jesus springs the trap, though, and he turns it back on them. He he says, look, okay, verse 29, I'll answer your question if you answer my question first. Deal? Sounds all right. What could go wrong? So Jesus asks, where did John's baptism come from? John the Baptist, where did his authority come from? Was it from heaven or from man? So Jesus turns it around on them. Who gave John the Baptist his authority and his ministry? Now, the Pharisees know they are stuck. You have a look at verses 31 and 32. Read with me again. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Well, you're not going to answer me. I'm not going to answer you. So Jesus walks away unharmed. Round one goes to Jesus. Second round, test of allegiance. Notice in verse 14 now how the Pharisees, uh, chapter 12, verse 14, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they want to butter Jesus up. They, they hit him with some nice comments. They give Jesus a pat on the back, and then they slip in their question to see if he will trip up again. And the question seems simple enough. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? But the answer to that question, it's a yes-no question. The answer to that could get Jesus into some serious trouble. See, if Jesus said, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he could be accused by the Pharisees of 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 submitting God's people to a Gentile ruler. Remember, Rome is in power. And 
in the history of Israel, it, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for someone else, another nation, to be in power over Israel. God promised Israel that they would be a kingdom and have their own king. And God promised that they would be the envy of the world. To have Rome in power over them was a deeply shameful thing. So if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees could go out and destroy Jesus' reputation. Jesus, he doesn't have Israel's best interests in mind. He wants us to be slaves of Rome, see? He says it's right to pay our taxes to the emperor who claims to be God. But if Jesus says no, he could get done for sedition. Rome would be very interested in hearing of an influential teacher who says that taxes no longer need to be paid. This is a test of allegiance. Who is Jesus going to submit to? You see the trap that they're setting for him? Again, Jesus sees right through it. He knows their hypocrisy. He knows this is a trap and his answer is sheer brilliance. He, he asked someone to throw him a denarius. It's a coin. It's a silver coin. It's worth about a day's, average day's wage. He turns the coin over and he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose image is on this coin? Now, in Australia, our coins have different pictures on them. Right? Most of them are animals, and on the $2 coin, we have an Aboriginal man. But on the other side of uh, the head's side of the coin, we have portraits of Queen Elizabeth. Now, traditionally, we have had pictures of the current ruling monarch, of the British Empire, and it's a nice little reminder that she is a very distant but very symbolic head of even our country. On the little denarius that Jesus is holding is imprinted the image of Caesar, a reminder that the coin belonged to Caesar. Jesus makes his point here. This coin has Caesar's image on it, and if it belongs to him, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. The coin bears the image of Caesar. Now in verse 17, when Jesus says, and give God the things that are God's, he's picking up on this idea of image and possession. The coin had, has the image of Caesar and belongs to Caesar. So what belongs to God? Those who carry the image of God. Us. We have God's image upon us. And because we have God's image upon us, we have his likeness upon us, we will always truly belong to God. And that's the brilliance of Jesus' answer. If Jesus had simply said, yes, pay your taxes, he could be accused of trying to submit everyone to Caesar. And the only one we are to submit to is God. And so he could be accused of worshipping Caesar, but his answer points out that money's just money belonging to man. But we are God's image bearers, and our true worship belongs to God. Our true allegiance belongs to God. So Jesus manages to say, essentially, pay your taxes and worship God alone. Now, that gets him out of the trap. And it's such a clever answer. At the end of verse 17, the people get it and they marvel at him. Round two goes to Jesus. Scorecard so far, if you're keeping track, Jesus two, Jewish leaders zero. Round three, next. Uh, this time a group of Sadducees comes onto the scene. Now, who are these guys? Uh, 
here's what you need to know about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of Jewish leaders who controlled who the high priest was. Right? They were also very wealthy. They had the, a lot of support from wealthy families and merchants. And they also dominated the temple. The Pharisees were the law keepers. The Sadducees were the temple keepers. And they were also a little bit quirky theologically. They, they rejected everything in the Old Testament except for the first five books of Moses. They only believed that the Bible was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Mark tells us in chapter 12, verse 18, that they did not believe in the resurrection. <clears throat> the Sadducees did not believe in life after death, so that's why they're sad, you see. Let that sink in. Okay. The test, the test that they come at Jesus with, it might be a little bit confusing, but it's based on what is called the Leverite marriage laws in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, which is the law that says if a man dies and leaves no children, so if I get married uh, to Steph and we don't have any children, I happen to die, then under the law of the Old Testament, what needs to happen is that my brother Brian needs to come and marry Steph and have children to carry on my line. Right? They're my children, even though I've died. Now, I think the idea behind that is so that the, the husband or the, the man, his, his name is not lost or his lineage is not forgotten in Israel. Now, that might sound a little bit weird in our ears, a little bit kind of freaky, but leave that aside for the moment. And the test basically looks like this. So a woman marries a man who dies she marries his brother who also dies. She marries the next brother who also dies. And the brothers keep dying until she's ended up marrying all seven brothers and ends up dying herself. That is one seriously unlucky family. <laughs> Imagine being brother number six. <laughs> right? Anyway, in chapter 12, verse 23... The Sadducees propose their question, which is super ironic and super hypocritical. Read, read with me verse 23 again, and I'll nuance it with their hypocrisy. Verse 23, he says, In the resurrection, which we don't believe in, when they rise again, which we don't think will happen, whose wife will she be? For she has had seven. Seven for the seven has had her, have had her as her wife. So how does Jesus respond? He basically says in verse 24, do you guys even Bible? For the older generations who don't understand that phrase, he calls them out and he says, you guys are wrong. You just do not understand the Bible. Now, just as an aside, when Jesus says you are wrong, he reminds us that just because, you have, just because someone has an opinion or an interpretation about the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that they're right or that they're correct. We, we need to, even intelligent-sounding arguments may or may not be right, so we need to be discerning. So he says you're wrong. Two reasons why. First, unlike what Hollywood has portrayed or a romanticized view might be, marriage is not forever. Marriage is a temporary thing. It's in this life. In the future resurrection, there is no marriage. Uh, Jesus says we will be like the angels, not in the sense that we become angels or that we grow fluffy wings, but that we will not be married and we will live eternally to enjoy God's presence. 
The reference to angels is also a kind of a backhanded comment because the Sadducees also do not believe in angels. So marriage is not forever, and the future resurrection life is one of enjoying God forever. Second reason why they're wrong, and he quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Now, that's really important. Remember, they only believe in the first five books of the Bible. And so quoting from the first five books, he basically says to them, you guys haven't read your Bibles. You don't get it. Jesus says, makes the point that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So you remember how God introduces himself to Moses in the burning bush? He says to Moses, I am God, the God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they lived 500 years before Moses did. So when God introduces himself as their God... He is saying they are still alive. They have been resurrected. There is life after death. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And so, verse 27, He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Cue mic drop. Boom. And the crowd goes wild at Jesus' answer. Round three goes to Jesus. Scorecard, again, if you're keeping track, Jesus three, Jewish leaders zero. Now, you see these three rounds of testing in the light of the parable. And in each case, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had rejected Jesus. But to reject Jesus is to reject God the Father. And make no mistake, you cannot claim to love and serve God And have a low view of Jesus. But their rejection of Jesus does not mean all of God's plans come crashing down. Their rejection of Jesus does not mean that his position as son and heir of the kingdom is now overthrown. Oh, they rejected me. What can I do? In the end, they will reject him, kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. And in the end, this will mean they will be rejected. Now, before we move on to our second sandwich, there is a small encouragement from this first sandwich. The first half is clearly about the the reject. The first half of our passage is clearly about the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leaders. But can we also see that from this hostility? Sorry, we can also see from this the hostility we see in here directed towards Jesus and Christians in general. Sometimes people ask good questions, but sometimes the questions are a sham. They're not driven by an honest searching for the truth, but by a deep-seated hostility towards God. Be very careful and test your own heart. Maybe some of us here who haven't bowed our knees to Jesus as our King, when we ask our questions, are we asking from a place of genuine, honest inquiry? Or are we asking from a place of rejecting Jesus to begin with? And for others, when we hear an intelligent non-believer spew seemingly intelligent-sounding questions and arguments, remember this. It's not naive to trust Jesus. It's not naive to trust Jesus in the face of their rejection. It's not weak to trust him. Because one day, the case against Jesus will collapse. 
So don't lose faith. Uh, one of my favorite YouTubers at the moment is a guy called Mike Chen. He runs a channel called Strictly Dumpling, and he does food reviews. He, he gets, he, his job is to travel all around the world and eat food and review it online. And for some reason, he has the, this massive ability to eat so much food. I just don't get how he can do that. I, I would get tired after one-third of his meals. Now, we've just eaten a very big sandwich we need to take a short breather before we get into the next sandwich because it's just as meaty. So what we're going to do is we're all going to stand. We're all going to stand. Everyone stand up. Okay, I want you to twist, twist around, take a big stretch. Put your hands on the shoulder of the person in front of you and give them a massage. <laughs> all right, and we're going to sit down. All right. Short little break over. Short little break over. Now we're moving on to our second sandwich, and again, it's chunky, it's meaty, and there's lots of complexity to work out. Again, we're going to start in the middle and focus in on the scribes and the teachers of the law, because for Jesus, he's got two major issues with, the, with them. The first is what I call theological blindness, or at least they've got a glaring theological blind spot. Now, these verses are a little bit enigmatic when you look at verses uh, 35 to 40, a little bit weird on first reading, not exactly sure what's going on, so it might be helpful to take a step back for a moment and see who the players are in this scene. We've got some scribes. So remember, they are the theological heavyweights of their day. They knew their Bibles inside out. You would never want to get into a debate with these guys because they would smash you with their knowledge of the Bible. We've got a crowd, a large group of people, mostly Jews, and if they're hanging around the temple, remember our scene is set in the temple, they're going to be relatively faithful Jews. And this crowd, they're relying on the scribes to be taught, to learn from God's word, to know and to understand it. Then you have Jesus, the target of the hatred of the scribes. Remember, they want to kill him, and yet Jesus is greatly concerned for the temple crowds. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus walks through the temple and he flushes out all the money changes and the sellers, uh, telling, reminding people uh, that he wants this place to be focused on worshipping God. And finally, you've got the setup. Je- this time, Jesus asks the question, not the other way around. We've seen three questions asked of Jesus. Now Jesus throws out his own theological challenge, his own Bible quiz, if you like. And the question goes something like this. How can the Messiah... God's saviour king, be both the son of David and the Lord. Now, a son is someone lesser than the father. And David was one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. So how can the Messiah be both David's son, a lesser person, and yet have David call him Lord, someone much greater than David? See, the scribes believed the the Messiah, David's son, was going to become an earthly king and and get rid of the powers to be. They thought the Messiah was going to be the king who would get rid of the Romans and get rid of any power that would be over Israel. But David said that the coming king would be Lord and his kingdom would be totally different. David's Lord is going to sit at the right hand of God. He was not going to rule from earth. He was going to rule from heaven next to God. 
And so David's Messiah king wasn't just going to be the king of a little nation in the Middle East. He was going to be the king of earth and heaven. Now the scribes don't get this. They don't get it because their understanding and their interpretation was too narrow and too small. Their view of the coming Messiah was too little. They were theologically blinded by their preconceived ideas. Remember, Jesus isn't here to put a a new patch onto old wineskins. He has come to bring something completely new. And in bringing this Bible quiz, Jesus is saying the scribes cannot be trusted to teach the people of Israel properly. And when everyone applauds, there's a sense that the crowd understands Jesus' point. The Jewish leaders don't just suffer from theological blindness. They, they, also prof- they are also profoundly and deeply hypocritical and deeply corrupted. Corruption in leaders is an evil, evil thing. Uh, Jesus paints for us a picture of men who loved the attention of being a scribe. People honored and respected them, and they loved to show that off. They loved long, flowing robes. The best seats in the synagogue, which is front row at, up here, right? places of honor at the feast. It all smacks of people who love to be noticed and want to be noticed. Of men who want to be first and not last. If they were alive today, they would be on Instagram, constantly showing themselves off and constantly showing off their latest fashion, taking selfies with celebrities, posing shots of themselves deep in Bible study or prayer, all with the hashtag, so blessed. There's an Instagram page called Preachers and Sneakers. Go check it out and see everything that Jesus is warning us against. These men then take it a step further, devouring widows' houses. They rob from the poor, lining their pockets at the expense of the poor and the needy. And everything they do, they do it religiously for their personal gain and glory and honor in this world. They are living for the now and not for the next. Jesus' warning is clear. They will receive greater condemnation. Everyone deserves condemnation, but those who take God's name in vain by taking advantage of their spiritual authority and position will be judged even harsher. Now, the point of this middle part of the sandwich is to show again why fruitless Israel and the temple was cursed. The fig tree, remember that from last week? That should have been, that the fig tree that should have been bearing fruit, and it wasn't because of the corruption of the leaders. Jesus warns here again, they will be taken care of at some point. Their corruption and injustice will not go on forever. But on the outside of this sandwich... We are given two very positive examples. In the middle, the scribes and the Pharisees, we have clearly a very poor example. On the outside, we have two good examples. Now, if the the problem of the leaders was their ill-hearted ways and manner, Jesus gives us two examples of wholeheartedness. Ill-hearted versus wholehearted. So jump back again to chapter 12, verse 28. And we we meet a scribe coming up to Jesus with an honest question. Now, notice, notice here... How previously, when the Pharisees and the scribes confront Jesus, they come in a group, plural, 
It's always the Pharisees and scribes, plural. But now we have one man, singular, coming to Jesus. Something is immediately different about this scene. The question, the question this lone scribe asks is a very good one. Which law is the most important one? Now, traditionally, there are 613 old laws in the Old Testament. 248 positive ones and 365 negative ones. One for every day of the year. So, which one of these laws is the most important to God? Now, Jesus answers, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and might. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And that is a brilliant summary of the whole Old Testament law. It's even a brilliant summary of the Ten Commandments. Right? Commandment number one, numbers one to four are all about what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And commandments number six through to ten are all about loving your neighbor, even as you love yourself. Now the scribe picks up on this and he agrees with Jesus. Jesus, you're right. He, he recognizes that loving God and loving others means more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. To put it another way, this scribe says that Jesus is right and that the temple is worthless unless there is genuine faith. The temple is doomed. What is more important to God is loving him and loving others. Now pause that for a moment and let what the scribe says here sink in. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that a Pharisee agrees with the teaching of Jesus. And he agrees wholeheartedly. There's no ill motivation. There's no set up trap. When he asks this question, he's not looking to trap Jesus. He's looking to hear, to learn, and to receive. The scribes, plural, are theologically blind and profoundly corrupt hypocrites. But here is this scribe, singular, who understands Jesus accepts what he says is the truth and believes. This scribe is a wonderful example for all of us. Someone with an honest question who listens and receives what Jesus has to say wholeheartedly. The second example given uh, to us is a poor widow and her offering. Uh, the scribes are those who want. They want greetings in the marketplaces. They want the best seats. They want widows' houses. But this poor widow puts. You notice that the word put or uh, uh, the, a word around that appears seven times in this little section alone. Now, why is Jesus focusing on this woman's offering as an example here? He's not saying, guys, it's now offering time. All right, get your wallets out. Nor is he saying that if you're wealthy and you give lots away, that's not enough. He's not saying you should give absolutely everything you have away. Sell your house, sell your car, sell your DVD collection and put it in the offering box. Right? He's, not pointing, uh, he's not pointing to her and applauding her for being irresponsible. What she is doing is the exact opposite of what the scribes are like. They want, want, want. She puts, puts, puts. And it's clear that she does it out of a very different heart. She's got two small copper coins, usually generally understood as to be, to be your daily allowance. 
Now, in today's money, that probably works out to be two $5 notes. And she hasn't put one in and said, one for you and one for me. She's put in everything. And why would she do that? I don't think it's a stretch to say that this woman has had an encounter with God and it has profoundly transformed her life. She has experienced God and has come to a realization that she now belongs to another world, an everlasting world to come. And in the present, she puts in everything she has. See, the scribes did not believe Jesus. They tested him. They were corrupt in their inner hearts. This woman believes God, trusts him, and responds wholeheartedly. So what? A couple of weeks ago, I preached on the impossibly high standard that Jesus sets in order to enter his kingdom. What he demands is impossible for us to follow in our own strength. And I've come to realize that in that passage back in chapter 11, Jesus does offer the narrow path to follow him. It is, an impos- it is impossible to follow Jesus in our own strength. But if we trust that he has substituted himself in our place, if we trust that he has paid a ransom for us, then Jesus makes it possible to follow him. We simply have to come to him like a child with childlike trust and faith. If we do, Jesus welcomes us. Let the children come to me, for to such belong the kingdom of God. We simply call out for mercy like blind Mark Bartimaeus, trusting that Jesus can heal our spiritual blindness. And here we are today. We simply hear Jesus and believe his word, following what he says, and we live wholeheartedly for Jesus and give everything we have to follow him. Ill-heartedness looks like the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. God's leaders, they're being warned that their failures to accept the authority and kingship of the Son will lead to their judgment and their destruction. But there is hope for those who follow God, who love God wholeheartedly. And that looks, wholeheartedness looks like the lone scribe and the poor widow. So one major takeaway from this passage, we need to ask ourselves, what is in your heart? Because what is in your heart will come out in what you do and what you say. If life is about cruising and not about Christ, then we will not live wholeheartedly for him. If, life, if money is spent more on the kids than it is on the kingdom, then we cannot say we are wholeheartedly living for him. Simon Manchester, a much older and much wiser preacher on this passage says, it's natural to want to be comfortable and happy. These are blessings that God richly gives his children. But remember, we follow a savior who gave up his comfort. We follow a savior who gave up infinite happiness with his father in heaven to come and serve us. If we follow Jesus, then our hearts are changed And we can more and more turn our backs on what we want and think and do what is really pleasing to him in this life and in eternity. If I follow Jesus more and more, I should be able to say no to this world and no to my personal comfort and no to my personal happiness in order to give everything to follow Jesus. And I find that incredibly difficult. 
My sinful natural inclination is towards my own comfort and happiness. But if I truly believe in eternity to come, then I can turn my back on what pleases me and live to please Jesus first. How about you? Do you find that hard as well? When you think of your comfort space, when you think of the space where you want to be more than anywhere else, and it doesn't have to be just a physical space, it can be an emotional space, a financial space, a place where you will feel comfortable. Can you turn your back on that in order to live to please Jesus and love, and love to serve others? This is the journey and struggle of denying ourselves, of taking up our cross and following him. And it's not easy. But praise be to Jesus and praise be to God that we can do it together. Let me pray. Father in heaven, there lays before us some big challenges in this part of your word challenge that maybe we didn't think we were ready to hear. We've seen the blindness and the hypocrisy of the leaders of Israel, and we know we don't want to go there ourselves. And we certainly pray that the leaders of our church will never be like that. But only by your grace and mercy can that ever not happen. So again, we throw ourselves back onto you. We throw ourselves back onto your mercy. We call out like blind Bartimaeus. We come to you with simple childlike faith, like little children, asking for your help. And we pray that you will help us. You'll help us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow you. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to do this and encourage each other to do this in the same way that our Lord and Savior did for us, giving up his comfort, and his own happiness to love and serve others. Father, there is going to be an eternity to be comfortable and infinitely happy with you. So help us to not think that forsaking some of that now is too big a sacrifice. For we pray this in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen.